Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. This show is dedicated to you, striving to bring you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. In these conversations, we try to uncover proven strategies for success and discuss technical aspects of creation, as well as giving you something interesting to listen to while you create your own work in your studio. This is The Creative Endeavor. This episode of The Creative Endeavor, I'm talking to Virgil Elliott, who has to be a modern authority when it comes to traditional oil painting. In fact, he wrote the book on it called Traditional Oil Painting. He has a Facebook group by the same title, and this is a wealth of information when it comes to creating pictures in the realist tradition. Virgil and I had a wonderful conversation spanning across many different topics from our views towards modern art, and then we got into the more technical aspects of picture making, talking about how to create more long-lasting oil paintings and covering some of those tried and true techniques that the old masters would have used. Now, I'm speaking with Virgil over Skype. I'm here in the South Island of New Zealand, and Virgil's in the United States, so please excuse some bumps along the way with a Skype call. There was a little bit of a feedback and reverberation coming through the line, but hopefully you can forgive me for that and just enjoy the content of this episode. I think you'll find Virgil a really interesting guy. Without further ado, here's Virgil Elliott. Well, Virgil Elliott, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Well, it's nice to meet you too, Andrew, and uh, I appreciate the, the plug you gave for my book, even though the book is no, not currently in print. No worries. Well, look, I'm looking forward to it uh, being available very, very soon. I know you're sorting that out. But look, I wanted to just refer to the book here just as we're getting started, because I think the first paragraph that you've written here, and I, and I, I would like to read this just for my, my viewers and listeners here, because I think it kind of sums up or sets the groundwork for, for what I want to ask you about and what we're talking about. So if you don't mind me just kind of repeating this back to you and just for the sake of the listeners as well. Um, so in the introduction, where you start off, in most large cities in the United States and Europe, there's at least one art museum in which can be seen firsthand oil paintings executed in centuries past by some of the greatest artists who have ever lived. Upon viewing uh, the best of these paintings, no one who has ever tried to paint can help but experience a profound sense of awe. Now, that is something that I think just kind of that, that feeling of awe, just looking at these old masters' works and just being completely transfixed and completely moved by them um, is something that I experience when I go and look at this original work in, in particularly 19th century collections. But I find kind of modern day paintings and, and for the most part seem to be lacking. Do you think we're missing something in today's art world, in particular in painting? Well, it depends on who you mean by we. Uh and also by today's art world. 
uh, the art world that gets the most publicity, yes, it's 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 missing a lot and lacking a lot, and it's backwards in. Uh, to me, it seems like it's backwards in every way. It seems, but I don't know if that's the art world that you intend or, uh, or the one that's that's re-emerging from that, or or in spite of that. Well, let's let's go with that because I I mean my my listeners will probably know by now that I I have a little bit of a disdain for modern art. But what's your take on the state of of the art world today in terms of academic modern art? It, I'm seeing some very slow improvements. Uh, I remember in about nineteen oh it must have been nineteen fifty one or fifty two. I was reading on the cover of Life magazine a big article about a guy they called Jack the Dripper, and I refuse to mention his name beyond that. And he was a guy on a ladder with a can of paint and a stick, and he was throwing it onto canvases that were laid on the floor, and he was being proclaimed as a genius. And I thought, I was a very young child at that time, I thought I must have been, you know, six or seven years old. And I thought, this is so ridiculous. I don't need to pay any attention to it at all. I was already committed to be an artist. You know, I started drawing when I was two years old and was serious from the very first day. And so my thought was, I don't need to pay any attention to this because people will realize how ridiculous it is. By the time I'm an adult, it will have all blown over. And no one will be interested in it anymore. I will simply concentrate on learning to draw as well as I can. And when I can draw well, then I will learn to paint as well as I can. And I'll be able to have a good career as an adult. Now, mind you, this was the early 1950s when I said this. And uh, now it's, what, 60-something years later. And it's just now starting to happen (laughs) a little bit. So my... uh, um, my cynicism regarding human intelligence was affected by this, as you, <laughs> it seems seems reasonable to me, uh, and so uh, I'm happy to see it happening while I'm still alive. But you know, I was a small child when I had that thought, and I still have that thought, and I'm an old man now, and uh, people are starting to finally get tired of being fed a lot of foolishness. And told that they're supposed to like it, otherwise they're uh, uh, intellectually deficient. <laughs> and that, of course, it plays to people's securities over their own intellectual standing. And that accounts for the popularity of that stuff, in my opinion. Uh, there has never been any reason for the great artworks that were ever painted, the greatest paintings ever created, the greatest sculptures ever created, to have such an extensive world of rhetoric to convince people that it's good because people can look at great art and be inspired by it, by the artwork itself, what it tells them. If somebody else has to tell people that something is good, that their own natural sense of quality does not tell them is good, they, they do and should become skeptical of the people who are trying to sell them something that looks like there's nothing there that's worth their attention. So <laughs> uh, these are some of my thoughts on that sort of thing. And frankly, I think it's it's been discussed 
so much that, that there's I don't see any great point in continuing to discuss it, frankly, because that sort of thing thrives on negative feedback. You know, when people yeah. say something yeah. about modern art and any of its various subphyla and aberrations, uh, they become, if they're critical of it in any way, uh, they get labeled as being uh, people who just don't understand or not part of the intellectual elite, the, the hip, cool in crowd that has these specially highly refined sensibilities to be able to see the finer qualities that the rest of us stupid fools can't recognize. It, it plays right into their hands to talk about how bad it is. So I don't really want to talk about it at all. I don't want to mention those people's names or waste any time discussing them because, frankly, that, I don't think they're worth discussion ever. They weren't ever, and they're still not, and I'd just rather everybody forgot about them. When the subject comes up, what I say is that was a 20th century phenomenon. Whether we like it or don't like it, it's not the 20th century anymore. And the art world tends to acknowledge things century by century. That's something from the last century. And people who advocate that sort of thing are stuck in their last century. There is one good thought that came out of that whole thing in the last century. And now I'm turning it around on them. And that thought was, it is valid and legitimate to reject the premises of previous centuries. So I am rejecting the premises of the 20th century. And all the criticisms they had of work from previous centuries prior to the 20th century now is turned around on them. It's no longer valid. It's passe. It's old fashioned. All it ever had going for it in the first place was novelty. And that novelty was a temporary virtue if you recognize it as a virtue at all. And it's gone now. And there's nothing left of value. There's nothing there that will inspire people on its own terms without a sideshow barker there telling them that they're ignorant fools if they don't like it. Well, on, on Sorry, the- I got off on a tirade there. I would have rather not had to talk about that stuff at all. But you asked me what my feelings are, and that's it. I, that, well, I, I'm, I'm afraid they rec- uh, you know, reflect my my sentiments exactly. Um, and well, I, then I, you have good taste. I, I appreciate <laughs> what you're saying, um, but you, you raised a few things in there. So let's let's move away from that subject then, and we'll move on to Certainly. what what actually makes great art. What is it? What is it about painting? What is it about art that is great art? You know, it just seems to be timeless. But in your opinion, what what are those factors that make you know great? timeless works of art? Well, I don't think those factors can be done justice verbally, quite frankly. If they could, we wouldn't need to paint. But the greatest artists have always understood what of the elements within their power to control elicit certain psychological responses in the minds of the viewers. And just as musicians need to understand this, or composers of music need to understand, there are certain patterns, intervals, colors, and sounds that the human brain responds to favorably. And these are not things, maybe they're things that can be quantified verbally. I don't think there are, and I would really not encourage people to pursue it from that perspective, because that would render them somewhat irrelevant. 
You know, uh, we have to recognize that there are limits to written and spoken language. There are things that cannot be expressed with words. Words have their limitations. And this is where art begins, where literature leaves off, where, where spoken and written communication leaves off. It's a visual world. You know, as somebody said one time that uh, talking about art is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think that words can do art justice. Uh, but there are color patterns that we recognize or color schemes that we recognize as harmonious and for whatever reasons, probably having their origin in, in you know, survival instincts from our ancestors long ago. That's just conjecture on my part. But there are certain patterns of light, certain distributions of shapes, certain types of shapes that we find more visually pleasing. And in music, there are certain tones that we find pleasing certain tones that we we find displeasing and composers of music understand that you have to have a dominant theme and you have to have a certain amount of opposition to that dominant theme in order to generate interest but the opposition must ultimately resolve in favor of the dominant theme uh, this is something that i'm a musician also this is something that plays into visual art as well. We have a dominant, we choose artists. We're basically orchestrating the elements visually, just the way, uh, you know, a, a composer of music orchestrates the uh, instruments at his disposal. We do that also with visual art. And so we realize our picture should have a certain range of values. Now, what, you know, what is the impact that we want to make? Do we want to make a dramatic impression? Then we would go with extreme chiaroscuro, like Caravaggio, like Rembrandt, like, like Ribera, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Or if we want a calmer mood to be generated, then maybe we will look at a, at a more compressed range of values and we'll go with a different kind of lighting, similar to William Bouguereau, similar to, to uh, Vermeer. It depends on the mood we want to create. And we realize that certain colors elicit certain psychological responses and we choose the colors that will help us express what it is that we want to express. Uh, and the best artists have always understood these things. Uh, it, it, there's an insight that develops as we're learning to draw and, and learning to paint that uh, basically, and looking at great works of art is the way really to develop these sensibilities and to gain an understanding of them. Uh, so we're lucky today that we have access to many more images than people of previous centuries did. This is one thing that I, I uh, don't object to about modern technology in the modern world. We're able to travel to cities where there are great art museums and we're able to see great paintings that were done hundreds of years ago. And we get to see a lot more of them than people of Rembrandt's time got to see. Rembrandt never left Holland so far as we know. Uh, he never even went to Italy. Most artists at least went to Italy to see the works of the Italian masters from the Renaissance. Uh, but so far as we know, Rembrandt never did leave Holland. 
he got to see the works of, of other artists whose works were on exhibit in, in Holland, and he bought some of them himself. He owned some works by Titian, as I understand it. He bought them at auction. And uh, so we have that advantage, and we can develop those sensibilities if we dedicate enough effort to it. But we have to travel. We, we shouldn't just limit ourselves to looking at artworks and reproduction, because reproductions always suffer. Looking at the artworks full scale, the size that they were actually created, and seeing them with our own eyes rather than through the eyes of a camera, we will see things the camera will miss. Uh, we will see things that the, differently than the way the camera does because the camera is constructed differently from the human viewing apparatus. Our viewing apparatus consists of two eyes connected to a brain. The brain plays a part in this. It has an editing function. Camera doesn't have that. The camera records what's, you know, it's a mechanical thing, and it's only got one eye, and its eye is flat in the back. Our eyes are rounded in the back. So there's distortion whenever there's a camera involved. So looking at the works of the great masters in the museums is the best way to develop these sensibilities, along with many years spent practicing drawing and learning to paint after one is good at drawing. Right. So I am rambling on, and no, I no, think I've forgotten no, no. what the original question was. <laughs> well, it was it was another silly question. Um, my first question was in regards to um, to I, I, so so far I'm two for two of bad questions, Virgil. So, <laughs> um, but I, I love where you go with these things because um, the the original question was all about um, you know are, are we are we missing something when we look at art of today or no no it's big pardon what makes great art. What makes great art? Yes. Okay. Um, Thank and, you for and, reminding and then, me. And then, so, but I, I love that. You know what? I, I'm going to use that from now on. Uh, talking about art is like dancing about architecture. I, that is brilliant. Well, it's not original with me. I got it from someone else, and I don't remember who it was or where. Well, that, Chances are, whoever I heard it from heard it from someone else too. It's brilliant. it's one of those <laughs> those folk sayings, I guess. Yeah, it's brilliant. Look, let let's talk a little bit about you personally if you don't mind because i oh my I mean, gosh yeah 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 look um because, you may regret asking well I, I i know a little bit about you obviously i have your book um beautiful book fantastic presentation full of knowledge i mean i thought i knew what i was doing and what i was talking about and and upon reading this, there was just so much background that I just didn't have, and it caused me to have even more questions. And it really got the 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 cogs turning, um, so to speak. And so brilliant, brilliant work there. Um, but Tell you're, me more. <laughs> you're well. You're a you're a um, a fantastic painter as well. You know, as a, as a great writer. But predominantly, you're an you're an artist. You're a self employed practicing professional artist. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. So, do you exhibit your work? Where do you where do you show your work? And and talk us through your your practice a little bit. Well, I'm not showing my work anymore, uh, at least for the time being. Uh, I'm not in galleries anymore. Collectors come to me directly now. So uh, I've been in many galleries over the decades, uh, and I've had good experiences with some of them and bad experiences with some of them. But uh, as things stand right now, I'm not strongly motivated to be in the galleries. And I haven't entered competitions for a while. I'm getting but most of my art income these days is from portrait commissions. 
wow. or commissions for paintings of my own ideas. Uh, and I'm always happy when I get a commission of that nature uh, because that let, you know, there's one very astute collector who uh, asked me to describe to him what paintings I had in mind that I wanted to do of my own ideas. And I described several to him and he chose one and he said, I, I'll commission you to paint that one. So I love it when that happens. Uh, it's probably yeah. the ideal situation for an artist. Hmm. But uh, yeah. but I get hired to paint portraits of you know people's families and so on, and uh, those are what I consider my pot boilers. You know, there's that term in art, pot boilers, and that's what <laughs> artists paint in order to keep something uh, boiling in their soup pot. You know, to to so to speak. Uh, and so portrait commissions are my pot boilers and I get paid well enough today for my portraits that that buys me enough time to work on the other paintings that are my own ideas. And if I live long enough, maybe I'll get them all painted. I'm uh, an old man now. And if I can live another hundred years, I'll probably get them all done. <laughs> I'm working on that. Brilliant, brilliant. Look, I, I, because you, I mean, from from you describing that, it sounds like an ideal situation for somebody starting out, uh, just just about to embark on their artistic career, and just looking at that as a long term kind of vision. Um, you know, they might be asking from this position, how on earth do I even get to that place where, where Virgil is now? That would be a dream come true. How did you start? Like, where, where did you begin this journey? Uh, with art school? Well, or? I've, I've done many other things to earn money before I got in a position where I could earn enough as an artist to not have to do other things. You know, I've, I've had other businesses of, you know, of my own that uh, were less intellectually challenging than creating artwork. Uh, but I was always doing artwork and pursuing my art career in the meantime. I used to do commercial art long ago, but I've had all sorts of jobs. When I was in my 20s, after I got out of the Army, uh, for a while I worked as an iron worker. Uh, oh, I've had, I've had a bunch of crummy jobs. <laughs> I never considered any of them permanent. They were just something to do to pay my bills. And, uh, I was always drawing and, uh, you know, continuing to refine my, my abilities as an artist. But when I was young, the art world was different somewhat from what it is now. Uh, and when I got out of the army, I was 21 years old. I was already a pretty good painter, not as good as I am now, but I was a good draftsman. And, uh, and I just signed up for college art classes thinking, you know, maybe there's somebody there that can help me become a better artist than I already am. That was uh, a mistake. <clears throat> and so, but I went to art galleries and I showed them my paintings and, and drawings. And they said to me, uh, this was, you know, what, 1966. They said to me, uh, we are not interested in anybody who draws or paints realistically now. Furthermore, we're not interested in young artists. Any artist under the age of 60 has uh, not yet reached his artistic maturity. And so, uh, and I looked younger than I was, you know, when I was 21 years old, 22 years old, I looked like I was about 18 or 17 or something like that. So that worked against me for most of my life until my beard turned prematurely gray at the age of 72 or something like that. 
But anyway, uh, so I had to do other things for a living for a long time. Uh, but I started doing commercial art as one of my sidelines. I did, did it freelance, small time in, oh, let's see, starting around 1976. Now, while I was, uh, you know, earlier than that, occasionally I would sell a drawing or a painting, usually drawings. Uh, I wasn't doing much painting at that time. I thought I would just concentrate on, on drawing for another 10 years before I got back into painting. I had painted one painting that disappointed me after I got out of the Army. I painted quite well while I was in the Army, but after I got out, I tried acrylics. I had always done my best work in oils. And when I tried acrylics, I was dissatisfied with the results of that painting. And I told myself, okay, I can't paint as well as I thought I could. I need to just concentrate on drawing for the next 10 years. And uh, my main medium for that 10 years is going to be pen and ink, where you cannot erase, you cannot correct. And so I, sub I uh, sentenced myself to 10 years of drawing with pen and ink before I would get back to painting. Wow. It turns out wow. that was unnecessary. Uh, but I think I did benefit something from it. Because uh, 10 years later, I started doing commercial art. And uh, so I was painting again. And I found that I, I was painting better than, than before. Uh, but those years of drawing did benefit me. I was already a good draftsman before that, though. Uh, so I might, it might have been overkill to make it 10 years. But anyway, I found that I could, I could paint as well as or better than before when I got back to it. And uh, the commercial art projects brought me to the attention of some people who would buy paintings from me or, or uh, commissioned me to do paintings. One thing led to another. And uh, by 1982, I thought I should enter competitions. I felt that I was ready. I was confident enough at that time that my work was good enough to, to, uh, uh, to start promoting myself as a fine artist. I quit doing commercial art around that time. And I started winning awards and art shows and coming to the attention of people. And then they said, please, we want to take lessons from you. And so then I started teaching art. One thing led to another. But all during that time, I, I had other ways of earning money, too. Like I said, I'm a musician. From time to time, I earned a little bit of money, never very much as a musician. I had another business in a, a construction-related field. Uh, I became very good at that in a short amount of time. It just started out as a part-time job, but I got good at it, and I became, uh, you know, in demand for my services in that capacity. Um, I'm versatile. I know how to do a lot of things. You know, I used to work in a motorcycle shop a long time ago uh, where we did metal fabrication, building custom motorcycles, and that's something I enjoy doing. It's a creative endeavor as well. But uh, uh, for young people wanting to make success as an artist, I guess the best piece of advice that I can give them is make sure you've got some other source of income because there's no guarantee that you'll ever be able to make a good living as an artist, no matter how good you get. I mean, and if, you know, if it happens and it happens when you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s, you'll have to somehow survive your 20s, 30s, and 40s before you'll get there. You'll have to be able to feed yourself. And uh, this is not a new situation. I mean, artists all through time have had help. And uh, Rembrandt married a wealthy woman. 
and I regard Rembrandt as possibly the greatest artist that ever lived. But he was greatly helped by by marrying a wealthy woman. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's father was wealthy. John Singer Sargent, his parents were wealthy. Hmm. Uh, Corot was wealthy. Edgar Degas come, came from a, uh, a wealthy family. Uh, Edouard Manet also. Uh, it, it, it's a real disadvantage to have to come from a, a family where there is no money to help a person and or, you know an artist to pursue art single-mindedly. It, it's a struggle. It is a struggle. And in the future, people that are young now may find it to be even more of a struggle because now there are these academies and ateliers or academies that call themselves ateliers who are turning out some very, very well-trained students and they're young and they're all in competition with one another for every opportunity that's out there. And so the competition is going to be very, very stiff. And whatever contribution my book made to that, it's made things more difficult for me too because now I've got more competition than I did before. And now the focus of the uh, uh, art buying world is on young artists and somehow or another, I'm not considered young anymore. <laughs> uh, so, Virgil, uh, come on. You're, you're still relevant, I, right? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I'm able to make a living as an artist. I'm not getting wealthy doing it, but, uh, you know, I'm able to pay my bills and uh, I'm not complaining. Uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing probably as well as or better than I ever have. You know, I've gone through periods in my life where uh, I was making enough money as an artist to live reasonably well and then uh, a recession would come along and yank the rug out from under me and destroy all my opportunities and then i would be uh you know struggling to survive and get through and uh, fortunately knowing how to paint portraits was a very important factor in my survival and so this is something i'll encourage every art student and every aspiring young artist to do is learn how to do portraits there will always be a demand for portraits by somebody who's able to do them well. And so, uh, uh, you know, people don't hire abstract expressionists to paint their portraits. That's when they have to look for somebody who actually is an artist and actually knows how to paint. So even if a person's greatest interest might be still life painting, landscape painting, figure painting, whatever, it's worthwhile to learn how to do portraits and learn how to do them very well. And it is the most challenging thing that an artist can become involved in, but it's worthwhile. And many of the great artists throughout history made most of their living by painting commissioned portraits. Rembrandt, on and on and on. I don't need to name them all. Mm. Peter Paul Rubens, Sargent. So there's no disgrace in painting commissions. Well, on There's that note, long precedent, uh, it, it, long line of precedence for that. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of, um, I, I had an, a situation that I, I just wanted to mention, though, um, to just again reflect what what you're saying there. Um, I was called um, by by a particularly you know wealthy client, and I, I paint portraits as well, which is a great supplement to the income. I can't use them for teaching or printing or, or use them in my YouTube videos, but I, I sell directly to, to people who who like to buy them. Um, but I had this this one opportunity to have a sitting with this this very wealthy woman, 
and um, she lived in Melbourne in Australia. I flew across and I was looking at her art collection and there were all modern abstract expressionist paintings. And I suddenly had this thought like, what am I doing here? What am I doing? Have you not seen my work? I mean, you know me, you know what I do. What am I doing here? <laughs> you know? And she said, well, I'm not going to get one of these people to paint my portrait, am I? I'm like, oh, well, I suppose not. You want it to look like you. So here we go. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm, I'm very much from that school of thought. Um, although my, I must admit my technique does need some, some work and refinement, but I'm from that school of thought that, you know, I, I want to bring out the sitter. I want the, the viewer to feel like that person is actually there. So maybe they're viewing it 60, 70 years in the future and that person is long gone. But in that moment that you're looking, you feel this moment of, of this personal connection with the, the subject and the painting. And so what you say, I think, is really sound advice. You know, learning how to paint portraits and paint them well, there will be a market. I just want to mention something else, though, that, that, you know, in regards to what you said, because I, too, have been affected by these recessions that come and go. And, and, and when that rug is yanked out from under us, there are still people at the end of the day who have got the money. You know, there are some people like it's just all I see it as is a recession is, yeah, it sucks for the little guys and, and people like me. And and the, the, the rug does get yanked out, but it's just a transfer of wealth from one person to another. So if you have something, some sort of skill or something to offer that is is valuable or, um, you know, desirable to somebody with means, then you're going to find yourself in, in employment. Um, so, look, from here, I. I I have a lot of people asking me, Virgil, about um, education and, and learning techniques and, and, hey, what art school did you go to? Because I want to go there. And I'm thinking, no, don't do it. Don't just don't do it. I've got my feelings about art school and art education. But what's your personal feeling? Um, and, and maybe what should people look for or watch out for if they're considering art school? Don't look to the university system and the colleges uh, for art education. Look to academies that are specially, you know, I mean, they're specialized in art. That's, I mean, there might be some good art instructors. I'm sure there are in, in, uh, in some colleges and universities who are, are competent artists. But uh, to go through the entire program that's specified in order to get a degree in the university system, the college system, Invariably, a student is going to be subjected to some sort of brainwashing, some indoctrination that is harmful to his or her development as an artist. And it's very disappointing. I have had experiences where I had students who wanted to study with me full time and I just couldn't devote full time to teaching because I'm primarily an artist and I will help people as much as I can. Uh, and make sacrifices to help them. But, uh, you know, I had a student years ago who, uh, very promising young man, uh, who uh, wanted to study full-time and wanted me to recommend a school. And so I, I had heard good things about a particular school whose name I don't want to mention now because it worked out badly. Uh, I recommended that he, you know, I told him I had heard good things about this particular school. And, uh, if, if he wanted a letter of uh, recommendation to get him in the school, I would write that letter. And he did. And he got in that school and he studied there. And I told him, I, before you go, understand that there's going to be people there 
who will give you a very persuasive sounding bunch of rhetoric that you should not listen to because it will interfere with your development as an artist. It may completely cancel it. And well, frankly, that's, that's what ended up happening as far as I could tell. Uh, and this, and this young man was, he had talent. He had tremendous potential. He could have been, you know, a great master. I think if he had just studied with the right people, but he listened to the wrong people they told him that what was bad was good and what was good was bad. And it's very hard for a young person who is you know, impressionable to resist that sort of thing when it's coming from a college professor. We think professors are smart people. If they say this is good, they're probably right because they're smart people. These are representatives of the intellectual elite. And so, uh, you know, they, it, it, the tendency for a, a young person is to place greater credence in the word of a professor who works in a college, uh, then is really warranted. So the places I would recommend people to go to study, if they can find a good artist to study with, an artist who has an academy, Michael John Angel at the Angel Academy in Florence, Italy, Daniel Graves at the Florence Academy. And, uh, and, and he's got several branches now. I think one of them is in... Uh, in New Jersey or New York, uh, and he's got one in Sweden, I believe it is Sweden, as well as uh, as in Florence, Italy. Um, there's the Grand Central Academy in New York. It's, uh, as I understand it, uh, it's, it was founded by Jacob Collins, who's a very good artist and a very good teacher. Uh, and there's uh, several of the students of Richard Lack have started up teaching academies or ateliers in various parts of the, of the world. Uh, in Minnesota, there's, I think, well, whatever was Atelier Lack has now been taken over by some of his former students. Um, they're all good teachers. I'm sure they're good teachers. They're well taught. And there's a lot that, that, that one can learn from them. Um, there's Jeffrey Mims in, uh, where is he? North Carolina, I believe he is. Uh, there are actually quite a few now, hmm. and uh, I, for, for those whose names I didn't mention because my memory is deficient at the moment, uh, I apologize to them all, but there are some good teachers out there, but I would say judge by the quality of their work, for one thing. Don't study with somebody whose work does not inspire you when you look at it. Hmm. If that's not the kind of work that, that, that moves you, that's that might not be the... the uh, instructor to study with. Uh, and so it, don't pay any attention to degrees. A master of fine arts degree, unfortunately, is a corruption of the word master. To include that in that degree, when they issue that degree to people who are not masters, it diminishes the validity of the term. It destroys the validity of the term master. And unfortunately, that's been the case throughout my entire lifetime. The college and university system has given master of fine arts degrees to just about anybody, no matter how badly they've learned to draw or paint. Just if they've spent enough time taking the classes and, and uh, doing the assignments and learning how to make good excuses for what they aren't very good at doing, 
they get a master fine arts degree. It is a worthless credential as far as I'm concerned. It's only good for getting a person a job teaching in the university system. And the qualification for getting that job being a credential rather than the actual quality of the work that a person is able to, to produce, uh, it's just wrong. That's all. Mm-hmm. Now, I, strangely enough, got a job teaching for three years at a, at a, uh, a community college years ago. I don't have a Master of Fine Arts degree. I went to four different colleges taking art classes, and I dropped out of them all after one or two semesters because I was getting nothing out of it that was worthwhile. But somehow, people on the inside at this school wanted me to teach there, and they got one of the instructors who had pull to uh, you know, pull strings to get me hired there. I lasted three years. But when I had my interview with the dean to determine whether or not they wanted to hire me, uh, there were two deans there, two nice ladies, and they asked me questions, and I had answers at the ready for the questions. As you know, if somebody asks me a question about art, I can talk forever. And they were impressed with my answers. And um, then they stood up and reached out as if to shake my hand, as if, you know, the interview was concluded and they had decided to hire me. And they hadn't once asked to look at any of my work. And I said, wait a minute, what the hell is this? I said, you haven't even seen whether I can draw or paint. Wow. You should never hire somebody without looking at his work. You know, and they go, oh, oh, yes. We, of course we want to see your work. But I'm the one that gave them that idea. They were ready to hire me without ever looking at anything. That, For all they know, I couldn't draw at all. You know, so I showed them my portfolio and they seemed to be positively impressed and I had the job. Whoopee. But they were going to hire me without knowing whether I could draw or paint just on the basis of what I could talk. You know, but a lot of people can talk a big game and it's all talk and there's nothing, not enough to back it up to make it really valid. But that's what's wrong with the university system. And it's still pretty much that way. So a degree is there is an expression. This is not of my origin, but somebody said this. In fact, a lot of people said this years ago that a master of fine arts degree is a certificate of incompetence. (laughs) (laughs) I won't say that that's universally true, but it's true in so many cases that somebody thought it was worth saying. And I don't disagree with it wow virgil mm-hmm. i have a certificate of incompetence you know the one that really cracks me up though is the <laughs> um is the 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 doctorate you can get your phd in art and what's a doctor of art or a doctor of fine art i i met a couple of doctors in my time who are what's your doctorate in or would you get your phd in oh art oh okay well you know i just i i it sometimes made me kind of chuckle to myself if ever there was a um, a situation on an airplane where the captain comes over the loudspeaker. We, we have a situation. Is there a doctor on board? And one of these geese get up. Oh, I'm a doctor. <laughs> what do you need? <laughs> but um, no, I, I, I'm with you on that, mate. I, I'm with I you. I have something to tell you about that. Yeah, go on. While I was teaching at, the, at, at this college, whose name I won't mention, uh, I had one student who had... Now, he, he, he was an elderly man, even older than I am right now. He had taught art for 35 years in the university system. He was the worst student that I had. Not only did he have a Master of Fine Arts degree, he also had a Ph.D. 
in some art-related field, maybe several, I think art history and art education. A nice man, we became friends, but he could not copy a single angle correctly. He could not draw at all. His powers of observation had never been developed. And he acknowledged that there is something wrong with a system, because I, I suggested this. I asked him, I said, do, do you think there's something wrong with a system that allows a person to teach art for 35 years when he can't even draw the simplest subjects accurately? And he acknowledged, yes, there is something wrong with that system. This is the worst student I ever had as far as his talent was concerned. And he taught art in the university system for 35 years. That's so, shocking, man. That is shocking. Well, I hope I didn't insult you with my uh, remark about the certificate of incompetence. No, no, not at all. You know, I, 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 again. Some people are exceptions to that who do have a Master of Fine Arts degree and can still draw and paint reasonably well. But they didn't learn it in the university. I, I agree they 100%. They their own somewhere else. 100%. They did not learn how to draw and paint well in the colleges and universities. I can't think of a single person uh, of which that is true, that, that they actually learned how to draw and paint by going to college and taking art classes. They learned it somewhere else, and they went to the college to get a degree. Hmm. I, 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 I mean, I, I was raised by an artist, who, a fine artist. Um, my father was a, was a sculptor, uh, still sculpts today, and, um, you know, he's getting on up there in years now, but he, he does realistic, life-size wildlife and animals and he could not give a stuff about the art world or critics or galleries or anything he does most of his work for um zoos and museums and primarily in the united states and his his viewers and the people that he's trying to impress and talk to um, with his art are children so they'll go and see you know the lion or the 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 elephant um you know the elephant's child or or some gorillas or and they'll be playing all over his bronze sculptures and he said that's who it's for it's not for the critics and i was raised by this guy and he told me before i went in to do my degree he said remember they will not teach you anything about art uh, you're already an artist, but when you go, just remember where you're going. You're going to just go and mix with some other people who might have similar values to you, and you're going for the social aspect. And so don't forget that. And he said, remember who you are and remember you know, what's important to you. And in pr precisely the same advice you gave that young man you know, years ago, you know, you're, you're, you're going to hear some, some crap and just know it when, when you hear it. I, I did get my degree, but I must admit, you know, the, there was a bit of damage done. And it wasn't until I, I became familiar with Old Master's work. And I, I tell you, the paradigm shift for me came when I saw Carl Rungus uh, paintings in the flesh and, and in books and reproductions. And I thought everything I was taught over those three years was crap. It was total crap. Like it, that's not important. Everybody's so busy trying to be different. Everybody's so busy trying to come up with the next groundbreaking idea that they're all doing the same stuff. And and there's nothing there that is authentic, you know? If you want to paint pretty pictures, then go and do it. And and that's what I wanted to do. I, I, I was a landscape guy, and I just wanted to paint scenery and portraits. And what you see is what you get. You know, you look at the landscape, you look at my painting, there's no question that it's a depiction of what you're seeing. And, and that's what really... 
Uh, so, so no, no, no offense at all taken. I think Virgil, we're we're on the same wavelength, very much so, and I, I really appreciate your position. In fact, I, I'm getting a chuckle because it's like I, I'm I'm hearing in you. Uh, you you remind me a lot of my father, actually, in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, he was a smart man. Listen to your father. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He is. He He's probably younger than I am. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think, well, I don't know. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? 73. He's a little younger than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only by a year, I think. Um, but um, no, I, I think you guys are from the cut from the same cloth, um, so to speak. But um, look, people will no doubt be be screaming at their, their iPhone now or, you know, watching this on YouTube, and they'll be wanting to know a little bit more about the technical aspects of painting. So I better cover some of that ground. And, and they'll say, why, why have you not asked Virgil about mediums and glazing and varnishing and all of this sort of thing? One of the things that I constantly am concerned with um, is when I when I'm painting in the studio, I'm worried is this painting going to be around in five years, 10 years or 20 years in terms of are, are the materials just going to hold together or is my paint going to peel off the canvas? Maybe you could talk us through some of the, you know, more tried, tested and, and, and true ways to keep our paintings lasting a long time. Um, because this is something that I'm personally really concerned with is the longevity of the work. I want it to be here hundreds of years from now. Well, there are several things uh, that I can tell you that will help uh, or that would help if you were able to get the right materials. But they're harder to get, some of them, outside of the United States because of these overly restrictive nanny governments that want to protect everyone, no matter how, how stupid they might be. Uh, they, don't, they don't want them to be able to suffer the consequences of foolish mistakes. And so they're trying to make the world so safe that uh, no person will ever die of anything. And, uh, and so they have outlawed the most permanent, or not outlawed, but, but made it very difficult to obtain the, the most long-lasting pigment that works in oil paints, and that is white lead, basic lead carbonate in linseed oil. The reason the old, the primary reason why the old master's paintings still exist and we're able to see them in the museums looking as good as they do is because they painted with white lead as their white paint. They weren't using titanium white. They weren't using zinc white. They were using lead white. And lead is a unique, lead is a unique element. Uh, it is more durable than just about any other substance. It, it, it's resistant to ultraviolet light. It has tremendous density, molecular density, uh, and it has a slippery aspect to it so that it, it lead carbonate, you know, which is, you know, lead, carbon, and, and um, oxygen to create lead carbonate. Uh, it, it, its molecule is such that it doesn't require a lot of oil to turn it into paint because it's its nature is to be slippery if you've ever handled any lead you know it's got a, a slippery surface uh, and the best primer for an oil paint an oil painting is white lead in linseed oil and all the companies in Europe that supply artist canvas uh, are using other types of primer they're not using lead white anymore all this, this uh, concern for 
toxicity has really interfered with the availability of basic lead carbonate pigment. Right. Right. So in the United States, there are still some sources of it, and there are still some companies that manufacture it. If you want me to name them, please. Uh, I, please. Okay, uh, natural pigments still has white lead available, white lead oil paint, and several different varieties, and they're all excellent. Michael Harding, uh, it, it, he's an Englishman who is a paint maker, uh, an artist who makes paint. And uh, he has recently opened, or within the last few years, opened a facility in the United States where he is making uh, lead white oil paint and making, uh, he, both he and Natural Pigments are making now uh, stack process white lead, which is white lead oil paint made following the same manufacturing process that was in, in uh you know, common usage in the 19, or rather in the uh, 17th century and, and prior to that time, the times of Rembrandt. Um, and they're also uh, putting out lead carbonate that, that is made by modern pigment makers, which has smaller particle size. It too is excellent. And so you've got a variety of choices of lead white oil paint available. There's another company uh, in New York called Vasari, V-A-S-A-R-I, that has uh, lead white. It has uh, also a lead white oil ground for priming canvases or panels. Um, Rublev is the brand that's put out by Natural Pigments. Williamsburg is another company that has white lead oil paint and uh, white lead primer for oil paintings. There are some other con companies, too. Uh, the European companies are tending to phase out white lead because the uh, – the source of the pigment that they used to get it from has uh, ceased to provide it. And so uh, there's one or two companies in the United States that still provide that pigment. Uh, but it's more expensive than, than the sure. ones that the European sure. manufacturers used to get it from. So uh, uh, they will sell it uh, until they run out of the pigment, and then they'll probably phase it out altogether, or else they'll get it from an American supplier and raise the price into the stratosphere. Uh, Old Holland had some, hmm. and maybe they still have some. Windsor Newton had some. Uh, maybe they still do. Uh, Blocks had it, whether they still do or not, I'm not sure. Okay. Sennelier still has it. Uh, I don't know about the other manufacturers, European manufacturers. Zinc oxide quite often is added to titanium white without, uh, uh, without the manufacturer calling it anything but titanium white. You have to read the fine print on the tube if they've been conscientious enough to provide that information. But look for PW4. That's that's the uh, the symbol for zinc oxide PW4. Okay. If that's there, don't use that paint. PW1 is basic lead carbonate. That's good. PW6 is titanium dioxide. It's okay, but it's not as good as lead white. Really, PW1 alone is the best. Now, PW1 lead white can benefit from a, a, a small addition of titanium dioxide, but not zinc oxide.
Hey, we're just going to take a quick pause right there. I want to take this opportunity to let you know about something that you might be missing out on. Now, if you're not subscribed through my website at www.andrewtischler.com slash subscribe, then you probably won't have access to some extra content that's absolutely free. Now, 24 hours ahead of time, before I upload videos to YouTube, I upload them privately and share them with my subscribers, which will give us an opportunity to interact in that comment section before it's a free-for-all and I make those videos public. This will give you an opportunity to ask some questions, interact with me, and this is something that I've really enjoyed, getting to know my subscribers a little bit better. But also, as I'm gearing up here and working in the background, producing more tutorials for you guys, I'm also going to give my website subscribers access to special deals, and you're going to be given a promo code to get special deals for some tutorials that are coming out soon through the website when you go to the checkout. So it's absolutely free to do this. You're going to get a little bit of extra bonus content, and I'd really appreciate it if you just take a minute and go to www.andrewtischler.com slash subscribe and subscribe through my website as well. Thank you so much. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Virgil Elliott. I know I am. Now, let's get back to that conversation. Let me ask you, though, what, what, are, what are some of the dangers of, of using something like a titanium or a zinc? I mean, look, as a, as a novice, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call myself a novice here, um, you know, but as somebody who's still very much learning the process of painting, I, I've, got, I've got a long way to go still. Um, I... I mean, I, I squeeze the titanium white. I can see a basic difference between the titanium and zinc. But what are some of the dangers that I'm likely to experience mixing that with my colors uh, years down the track? I mean, it well, looks the danger is not to you, but to the longevity of your paintings. Okay. Uh, zinc white should be avoided completely in any percentage. Zinc white becomes very brittle very quickly in oils, and it it will cause your paintings to crack. It will cause your paintings to delaminate, the paint layers to separate from one another. There are several causes for this that are, are you know, inherent in the molecule of zinc oxide. It, it's not a good pigment for oils. It's a good pigment to use in water-based media. That's what they use in watercolor that they call Chinese white. It's fine for water-based media. But when you put it in vegetable oils to make oil paint out of it, it's worse characteristics manifest themselves in ways that will cause your painting to fall apart, crack, delaminate. Uh, titanium white that has zinc oxide in it, this is true of that as well. Zinc oxide in no percentage that has been established yet with any degree of certainty can be regarded as safe in oil paints. Wow. That includes paints made with lead white that also have zinc oxide added to them. They, they also are prone to delamination. So it's best to avoid zinc oxide in oil paints completely. Titanium dioxide had zinc oxide added to it by a number of manufacturers uh, before the full extent of the, the problems with zinc oxide were understood. Uh, and, and the addition of zinc white to uh, zinc oxide which is zinc white, to titanium white was to bolster the faults of titanium white. Titanium is a very lightweight metal. You know, it's used in making racing cars and motorcycles because it doesn't weigh very much. And, and 
titanium dioxide is a white, fluffy powder. And it, again, it's one of those pigments that works very well in water-based media. You know, acrylics, watercolor, uh, you know, gouache, you know, uh, egg tempera. Mm-hmm. But mixed with oil, it makes a very weak paint film, very spongy, weak paint film. Uh, and it, it, it does not exhibit the drying tendency to oil paint uh, that lead white does. Lead white acts as a dryer, and it adds physical strength to all the paints that are in the same ensemble with it because there are bits of it. Lead soaps are formed when uh, basic lead carbonate is mixed with uh, vegetable oils. These lead soaps actually migrate through the paint layer and add physical strength and durability to all the paints in that whole painting. Uh, And if you've painted on a white lead ground, it has that effect also. So the reason the old master's paintings, the biggest reason the old master's paintings are still there is because they used white lead. They didn't use titanium white. If they had used titanium white or zinc white, their paintings would not have been possible to restore. They would have fallen apart and we would have never been able to see them and be inspired by them. And why this is important is because for art to quality art, the kind of art that you and I appreciate, we want people to be able to appreciate that forever. Artists are the standard bearers for quality as I see it. And we can create people, create artworks that will inspire people to appreciate quality, understand what it is, and want to create it for themselves. We can only influence people by, with our paintings as long as our paintings actually exist. If they fall apart in 30 years or 35 years or 10 years, they're not going to inspire anybody beyond that period of time. So that's why it's important to be concerned if we're capable of painting paintings that will inspire anyone when they look at them. It's, I think, important to put them together with the best materials, the most durable materials we can find. Right. And lead white right. is the number one thing. Second of all, I would say avoid – if at all possible, painting on flexible supports. <clears throat> that means stretched canvas. Stretched canvas was adopted as an expedient during the Renaissance, possibly earlier even, when uh, wealthy patrons such as the church had these huge cathedrals or these wealthy dukes had these palaces and they wanted huge paintings in there. And the artists were faced with a difficulty. How do we create panels in those dimensions that we can transport out the door of our studio and install in the cathedral or in the, uh, the Duke's palace or the, the Pope's palace or who, King's palace? How do we do this when we don't have, uh, you know, Federal Express's trucks to deliver it in. We're having to deliver it by ox cart or by by <laughs> boat, you know. So they realized stretching canvas on a framework of wood allows it, once it's finished, to be detached from its framework, rolled up, and delivered to its destination, and then it can be reattached to a, a framework of the proper dimensions there. 
And canvas was readily available in Venice, which is probably where this started, because that's a seaport. And canvas was used for sails of sailing ships. So that's where that came about. And people found its surface agreeable to paint on. Uh, it was different from painting on a panel, and it allowed you to paint a bit faster if you used the right kind of brush and a large quantity of paint. Uh, it gave some very pleasing effects that were not as natural when you're painting on on uh, smooth panel with soft hair brushes. Stiff bristle brushes work better with with a canvas texture, and so on. So this is this is why canvas became popular, and then ultimately it became popular for smaller pictures as well. Even though uh, during the time of Rembrandt, a lot of artists still preferred to paint on wood panels for their smaller paintings, and they would only use canvas for large paintings, large commissions. Uh, but it's not ideal because oil paint becomes brittle. It loses its flexibility after X number of years. And when you have a layer of paint that is no longer flexible, because it's no longer young, and it's on a flexible support that will expand and contract with changes in the humidity and temperature, or when someone opens a door, you know, it creates a slight draft, the canvas is going to go like this. And if there's a rigid layer of paint on it that's brittle, it's going to crack. And when the surface of a painting cracks, then its integrity is interrupted then, and things that are in the air and applied to the surface can get below the surface. And they can get below the surface and start working to separate the layers of paint. Yeah. And so this is the beginning of the end of an artist, an artwork, an oil painting specifically, uh, the life of an oil painting. Uh, and if it gets in the hands of good qualified conservators before it falls apart entirely, it can be rescued. But we can't a anticipate the future and know that our paintings are going to fall into the right hands and be well cared for by the top-level conservators of the future. Uh, they'll, they'll be in private collections in all likelihood for a long time before they get to a museum, if they ever get to a museum. And private collectors probably aren't going to want to hire the top-level conservators. If their painting needs some, some uh, restoration, they might just hire the cheapest guy. And if they hire the cheapest guy, that's not necessarily the one who's going to be doing a good job on it. And a lot of paintings have been screwed up by attempts at restoration by people who weren't the best. Let's put it that way. Nice way of saying it. Mm. <laughs> so we're lucky that any of the paintings of the old masters survived because conservation practices in, in centuries past uh, – are now recognized as being very problematic and have, have caused a lot of problems that some of which have been able to be undone by current level science uh, and some of them can't be. So uh, you know, we're lucky we get to see any of the old masters paintings and, 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 and uh, be influenced by their, by the original impact that the artist imbued the paintings with. And uh, we want to be able to do this, if we can paint paintings that will move people profoundly, we want to, we should want to put them together soundly enough and with good enough quality materials that they'll last for hundreds of years, just like the paintings that inspired us lasted for hundreds of years, so that we can inspire artists of the future. We don't know how long the paintings of Rembrandt are going to last, or Rubens, or Titian, 
or any of those. I mean, already, I'm sure a lot of them have, have deteriorated beyond the point where they're suitable for exhibit. Some of them may be no longer in existence at all. We don't know how long they'll be able to hold together, uh, how much they're going to change as a result of the, the ravages of time. So we've got to paint new paintings for the uh, people of the future to appreciate and to uh, be reminded of what beauty is and what quality is. And uh, when I speak of quality, I would like, if I'm writing it, I will use a capital Q when I use it in this context. Uh, <clears throat> the way uh, Robert Persig, the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, used it. Quality is something that cannot be defined by words, but it's instantly recognizable. This is what we do with paintings. We will imbue them with quality that is instantly recognizable. This is, this is the goal that I recognize as valid for an artist. Our paintings should not require a treatise of rhetoric to convince people that it's worth looking at or that they should appreciate it or that they should like it. The painting itself should give that impression. And the best works of art do that because they have quality. Uh, a phrase that I coined myself years ago was intrinsic appeal, which is essentially the same thing as quality. And it's the same thing that was translated from the ancient Greek into virtue, which was not exactly a, a, a good uh, uh, translation of the Greek word uh, for that. It was a bit misleading. But it, quality, with the capital Q, is probably a, a closer translation to that original Greek term that was translated into English. It makes a lot more sense that way. Hmm. So that's something that an artist must develop an understanding of, and it cannot be conveyed verbally. Hmm. Hmm. That's just one of the things that goes beyond verbal and written language. Well, in in talking about um, a little bit more of this this quality and and preserving paintings for, for future generations, making sure that we, we imbue that, that work of art with as much as we can muster. Um, one of the questions that I get a lot, and one of the things that I'm, I'm personally concerned with, um, is what we're adding to our paint physically in order to give it a certain quality of, of either uh, thickness or transparency or drying rate, you know, mediums that we're, that we're adding to the paint. Um, to, to change it in some way, I, I always get worried. I'm thinking, okay, am I going to run into issues with this binder years down the track or am I going to you know, have this last pretty well? I, I had been using throughout my career Winsor Newton Liquin original um, for, for a long time, Alkyd resins. Um, and then I've just recently started playing with more traditional types of mediums. But what personally do you use? What's some mediums that you like um, given your your work in, in painting? Well, I've gone through everything over the years. I've been painting for a long, long time, about 60 years. So there's probably nothing I haven't tried. Uh, but what I'm using these days, uh, it, it you know, people will be disappointed to hear it. But linseed oil. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Is that and, stand oil or refined linseed or... What, what kind of linseed well, oil? Well, this, this was uh, flaxseed oil that I bought at the health food store in 1985. Uh, the brand name was Hain, H-A-I-N, and I treated it. 
I did uh, water washing treatment, which is how is the main method of uh, that was used in centuries past for purifying linseed oil. I've got the procedure uh, explained in my book, uh, but essentially it, it uses water. It would put one third of the container, you know, like a, a, a plastic soda bottle works well to do this. You put one third water, one third linseed oil, and one third air, and you shake it up. Some people put sand in there. Some people put salt in there. I, I don't think it's necessary to do any of that. You shake it up until it's a milky emulsion, and then you let it settle. And then the next day, you shake it up to, again you know, for a minute or two each time until it's, it's mixed and it's, you know, all cloudy, one, one substance. And then you let it settle again. You do this every day for 10 days, and then you just leave it alone. Put it on a windowsill and let it settle, take the cap off, and uh, put some cheesecloth over the top to keep insects out of it, put a rubber band on it to hold the uh, uh, to hold the cheesecloth on. And uh, while it's settling, also the sun is shining in the window on it and, uh, and giving it a bit of bleaching. Eventually, it will separate into three layers. The bottom layer will be water, the top layer will be the purified oil. Separating those two will be a layer of scum, which is the impurities, the water-soluble impurities that were in the linseed oil, mucilage, and possibly whatever was left over from the plants that it was squeezed out of. Uh, and then one way or another, you want to remove the refined oil from it without disturbing the layer of scum and without getting any water in it. And then you can expose this to the sun uh, in a, a clear container like this. And uh, that will give it a bit of sun bleaching. So that's what this is. This is what's left of a batch that I did in 1985. Wow. That'll give you an idea of how little of it that I use. Uh, as far as mediums go, really the less you add to your paint, the better it is. Uh, if you put too much fluid in with your paint, you're basically weakening the paint film that's going to result from it. Now, I use an analogy uh, quite often with masonry. Now, if anyone understands masonry, they know that the strongest structure has the stones fitting closely together with very little mortar required to hold them in position. If you've got a, a structure that's made out of stones that don't fit well together and there's a lot of mortar in between them, that structure will not last as long as the one where the stones fit closely together. So if we were to take a, a razor blade and slice a paint film lengthwise and look at it with a microscope, the stones are the particles of pigment. That's the solid matter. And the medium and the binding oil, that's the mortar. So you can see how this analogy uh, applies, I would think. If you've got too much medium in between these particles of solid matter, that's not a very strong paint film. That's a paint film that's going to crack more easily. That's going to develop problems because oil shrinks as it ages. That's one of the things. So you'll have what's called cleavage. Uh, as the oil shrinks, it loses physical volume. And eventually there will be 
cracks as these, the paint layer separates. This is what happens when people use too much medium. So uh, I think there's too much reliance on medium. And the reason for it is that people are painting with paints that come out of tubes. And uh, the manufacturers of these paints adulterate them with stabilizers to keep the oil from separating away from the pigment in the tube. And uh, really, there's, there's nothing wrong with it doing that. But people don't understand this, and they complain, oh, I opened the tube and nothing came out but oil. And so they put, they put uh, aluminum stearate or, uh, or uh, hydrogenated castor oil or some substance like that in there that, that will uh, turn the oil into more of a colloid rather than a fluid so that it won't migrate away from the particles of pigment. So it comes out like more like toothpaste or window putty or something like that. Well, that's not the right consistency that we need for, for controlling paint on our paintbrushes. So then people look for something to add to it to make it behave, to make it the right consistency. And then they're adding this medium and that medium to it. And people are placing too much importance on medium. Now, there is one oil painting brand that I know of that puts no stabilizer whatsoever in their paints. And that's Rublev. And right. the reason they did that is because I was the one who suggested it to them. And uh, so they started wow. doing wow. that years ago, and it's worked out very well for them. So you can buy paints from Rublev. Natural Pigments is the company that are paints that are as close as you can buy without having to grind them yourself to the paints that were used in the days of the old masters. And they're using uh, pigments of varying particle size. They're using various configurations of, of, uh, of oils, linseed or walnut oil. Uh, some of them polymerized or, or what they call bodied oils. Uh, George O'Hanlon is the uh, is the owner of that company and, and the, the chemist in charge of it. And uh, he's a very astute researcher and a very conscientious manufacturer of paint. And yeah, I'm plugging his, his paint uh, because it's paint that I encouraged him to make in the first place. <laughs> is that what you're painting? <laughs> yes, primarily. Uh, if, if he were to make the full line of pigments, use the full line of pigments that I want to use, I would probably just use paint from his company, unless I could convince other companies also to dispense with the stabilizers. I don't want stabilizers in my paint. Aluminum stearate is soap. It's, it's an ingredient in shampoo and things like that. Uh, it's not necessarily a good thing to mix with oil paint as far as how long that paint layer is going to last. It has, it, it serves as a plasticizer, uh, which is possibly a beneficial effect, but it also has potential for harmful effects as well. And these are just now starting to become discovered by paint chemists and conservation scientists. And I stay in contact with conservation scientists and paint chemists. Um, these are some of my colleagues on the ASTM subcommittee for artist paints and materials where I've, I've been a, a member of that subcommittee for, oh, uh, let's see, over 20 years and an active participant. And I've come in contact with a lot of people who are extremely knowledgeable on those subjects um, through that subcommittee. And I'm privy to information that a lot of artists aren't privy to. And so I want to bring that information to artists. And this is why I wrote my book. And this is why I have my uh, my book 
I mean, my uh, group on Facebook that's titled Traditional Oil Painting, same title as my book, to keep people up to date on the latest developments. Because anytime you, you write a book, uh, it, it, it runs the risk of becoming uh, dated anytime new information comes along. And so the longer a book has been in print, uh, the more possible it is that something isn't right in it. And so I want to be able to update my readers. Uh, if I come across new information that says that something I wrote in my book was not correct, I want to be able to bring that information to them. Sure. I don't sure. want to just continue to argue in favor of something I said 10, 20 years ago uh, because I want to be right. I, I want to actually be right now, not 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Now, most of what I wrote in that book 10 years ago and, and, and before, I, I, the writing of that book covered a 22-year period. Uh, and, and, and most of what I wrote is still good and still valid. There are some changes I'll make to it once I, I, I come out with a revised edition. But uh, the book's out of print now anyway. <laughs> Used copies are still available through book searches. And uh, generally, the prices are pretty high, a lot higher than they were when the book was available from the, from the publisher. But we'll see what's going to happen uh, when I can get a reprint, uh, or that is, you know, a new edition of it on the market. Whether it will be by uh, the original publisher or another publisher remains to be seen at this point. But used copies of the book are available, and people who have the book and, and or are curious about these things can get good updated information based on current level of scientific knowledge on Facebook traditional oil painting group. And that's my group. I am, I am the admin there, and uh, I'm the major contributor to it. Hmm. And so, uh, well, I, I, I would like to just say, I mean, the, the book is excellent, but that Facebook group is is fantastic as well. And I found myself, uh, you know, searching through the conversations on, on and, you know, on, on the wall of that Facebook page. I mean, people are posting some really interesting questions and you'll jump in there as a moderator, administrator uh, with your your answers. And and I found myself just using it constantly as a resource. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So I encourage everybody listening to this to to uh, jump on that Facebook page. Make sure you're following Virgil's page on traditional oil painting because you will just learn so much. And, and I'm amazed as well because of the volume of information that's on there. You can have a specific question and just do a search on a key word and find the conversation that's directly you know, related to your exact question. I found that several times, so it's really cool to see. And I just hope you keep doing that, Virgil, because you're, you're a wealth of knowledge and an absolute inspiration for artists like myself, and I know for the younger, you know, up-and-coming artists as well. Well, I intend to do that. I, I made a promise to myself back in the 1960s when I became so uh, disappointed, it's really too mild of a word, I became angry infuriated by the fact that the colleges that I was taking art classes at were taking people's money under false pretenses. They were not, not only were they not teaching us how to do what we signed up to learn how to do, they were trying their best to discourage us from even pursuing that sort of thing. There was a very aggressive program of discouraging us from wanting to become good artists in a realistic manner. And I 
of all the people that I took classes with, I'm the only one who was resistant in that, resistant to that, because I was already a good draftsman and a fairly good painter when I went there, but I wasn't as good as I wanted to be, and I foolishly thought that there would be someone there that could help me do it better. So I made a promise to myself when I finally realized I'm wasting my time and money at these institutions, and so are all these other people too. There is something so wrong about that situation. I have got to do something to change it. And so I promised to myself I would dedicate the time and energy to learning all the things that I needed to learn in order to be able to paint at a high level. And that once I got there, I would make sure that anybody who wanted to learn that, if they, if people couldn't find it, someone else to teach it to them, I will teach them. And so many years later, I was teaching art. I was teaching a, a, a private class in 1985. And my students asked me one day, uh, what book can you recommend that has everything in it that you're teaching us? And I said, well, there are a lot of books out there, but there's not a single one that I can re can uh, recommend without reservation because there's bad information in all of them. Or, you know, yeah, actually, that's the truth. And and uh, so there's, there, you know, you're just as apt to be confused as you are to be helped by them. Hmm. And they said, then you have to write one. And so then I realized, oh, yeah, I made that promise to myself, you know, back in the 1960s. Uh, and they're right. I do have to write one. And so that's when I started out writing my book. I didn't intend for it to take 22 years before I got it published, but that's the way it worked out. Because once I start on a project, I want to do it as well as I possibly can. And that means doing a lot of research. And so I went to museums all over Europe when I could barely afford it. But I wanted to eyeball those paintings, my own eyes, this was before I needed these, and uh, analyze those paintings and read everything I could read and pick the brains of the best artists I could find, talk to the paint manufacturers, get to know conservation scientists, learn everything I could from all of them, and uh, so that I could make sure that what I wrote was just not another book with a lot of bad information in it, of which there are many, many on the market right now. So that's why it took me as long as it did to get it finished. And it was not a full-time project because I'm not primarily a writer and nobody was paying me to do it. I am primarily an artist and I had to earn a living besides writing the book. I, I'm, I'm about to start a new series. I want to go traditional, traditional. I'm, I'm looking at the book. I'm also doing some research. I've got Massey's book and Mayer's book as well. You know, a bit of a blast from the past there. Um, there were my mother's when she first started painting. Um, Whose books did you say? Robert Massey, uh, which was the oh Massey, okay, yeah, formulas for painters, and then Mayer, yeah, which I've, was I've a, got it. Hand, I've, I think I've got the fourth edition of his um, artist materials uh, book. Uh, I, I've, I've got the book. I've read it. Okay, so I, and I'm I've got Ralph Mayer's. You have to keep in mind all of these books come from a time when scientific knowledge was not as advanced as it is now, mm. and so now we know that some of the things that they were saying. Uh, were not good information. Okay. They were thought to be good at that time, but they're not anymore. So they're not the last word. Okay. If you want a book that, that is closer to up-to-date, uh, then Mark David Gottsegen's book. Okay. The Painter's Handbook. Mark David Gottsegen. I'll spell that when you're ready. Uh, yeah, go for it. G-O-T-T 
S-E-G-E-N. Great. Mark David Gustigan. And, and uh, get the uh, expanded and updated edition. Okay. It, it's published by Watson Guptill. Okay, expanded plus updated. Great. Now, um, his book is more recent than Ralph Mayer's, and so he had the benefit of more, uh, more recent science. And uh, Mark Gottsegan was the uh, he died just a, a few years ago, but uh, you know he was one of my ASTM colleagues. He was the the chairman of the uh, ASTM subcommittee on artist paints and materials. He was a very astute researcher, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he was in contact with everybody. Maintained, uh, you know, good working relationships with everybody in the paint making industry and the, and the, the uh, materials testing industry and uh, the uh, conservation science industry. Uh, and uh, the only time Mark is wrong about anything is when he disagreed with me, <laughs> <laughs> which is very seldom, to tell you the truth. Well, look, I will look up that book. So I'm about to start a new series of works. Um, I, you know, I live in a really nice part of the South Island in country New Zealand. So I'm doing some on plane air and that sort of thing. Now I, I'm looking for, I'm trying to move away from the liquid and alkyd resins. Um, so I just want to go back to just plain linseed oil. I picked up a bottle of refined linseed oil and I got a bottle of stand linseed oil. And I also got a bottle of pure gum turpentine. So I'm going simple, simple, simple. Um, it mentions in your book that with stand oil, mix a little bit of turpentine in there to kind of get that stringiness to kind of break down, smooth it out, make it a little more homogenous. I, I can't remember the exact term. Yeah, that's information that I uh, I no longer feel is is the best thing. Okay. Uh, these days, I'm painting with no solvent whatsoever. Great. Even for your underlayer, even for your your base coat or toning the canvas, no solvent. No solvent. So what do you? So you're using that that washed linseed oil and and more more of the no. oil. No, I'm just spreading the paint on thinly by using a stiff hog bristle brush and pushing hard, spreading the paint out, and then if it, if I want it to be thinner than that, then I'll take a brush like this. And I'll stipple the surface until the paint is as thin as I want it to be. Wow. I'm not, wow. not thinning the paint with solvent at all. If you thin the paint with solvent, you weaken the binding strength of, of the oil. Okay. And you wash some of the oil off of pigment particles. It, it, it's, uh, it sets up a situation where the, the likelihood of delamination is increased. Uh, for for the optimal adhesion of oil paint to the primer, the ratio of oil to pigment as it comes out of the tube is about as perfect as you can get. And if you add anything to that, to alter that, you're weakening the resulting strength of the film that, that's created. Wow. Okay. Okay. I've got to... <laughs> Because I've got a massive, a massive canvas. And my next commission is also, uh, I've got a commission work to finish off um, besides the work I want to do around here. It's two and a half meters by one and a half meters. Um, big, big Australian landscape. It's being shipped from New Zealand back over to Australia. Um, what are you painting it on? Uh, Belgian linen, but it's been acrylic primed. 
Well, that's probably better than oil primed if it's come from Europe because all the canvases that come from Europe that are oil primed have zinc oxide in the priming. So acrylic primed is probably a better choice than that. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> and as far as, yeah, uh, Belgian linen is good. Uh, actually, polyester canvas is probably better from a longevity standpoint. But, but linen is considered the industry standard. So uh, uh, if it were me, I would glue it to a uh, honeycomb aluminum panel so that it's rigid. I don't paint on stretched canvas anymore. Okay. I, I, I paint on rigid panels. Uh, uh, let me see if I can show you one right here. Please, yeah. Are you sitting in a wheelchair? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I like wheelchairs. Well, I'm glad you can walk. That's <laughs> I was just thinking, because I, I saw you move before. I thought, oh, is he, are you confined to a wheelchair? Jeez. No, okay, I see what you're doing there. Yeah, okay. No, see, I, I, I prefer to work standing, yeah. but since I got old and I've got a lot of back injuries, I can't work standing for as long as I used to. Right. And so uh, uh, the reason it's good to work standing is you can step back frequently and look at your work from a distance and you'll spot whatever mistakes might be there more readily than you will if you're staying too close for too long. Yeah, so sure. with a wheelchair, I can roll back and see my painting from a distance. I like wheelchairs. Excellent. <laughs> anyway, here's, one of, here's, here's a painting I've been working on. I okay. just started it. It's, it's a commissioned portrait of a family. I don't know if you can see it or not. Can you? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fantastic. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, that's it's, better. Uh, that's better. Yeah. It's lead-primed linen, and it's glued and tacked to a, a rigid panel. This is the back of the panel. What's the thickness of your ply that you've glued it to? What's that? What's the thickness of the plywood that you've glued it to? Uh, it's pretty thin, but it's braced with, with basswood. That's brilliant. Uh, I think it, I think it's eighth of an inch plywood. Okay. Or, or I'm not, I'm actually, I'm not sure. John Annesley company makes these for me. John Annesley company in, in Hillsburg. Uh, John died recently, but his son is carrying on the, uh, the work. And, Excellent. uh, so this is a, a mahogany plywood and, uh, and the linen, the linen canvas is is made for me by uh, a man in in, uh, in New York. Uh, his name is Angel de la Cruz. Everybody says Angel, but you know he's he's Dominican, so he you know he's a Spanish speaking man, and uh, the Spanish pronunciation of Angel is Angel, mm -hmm. and so everybody calls him Angel except me. I call him Angel. But uh, Angel de la Cruz at AE Art Canvas in, in New York. Right. Uh, he makes he makes my he primes the canvas for me. I get that from him, and uh, and then I glue it to my uh, my panel. So I'm painting on a canvas, but it's on a rigid panel so that it won't crack. Brilliant. And it's primed with white lead. So uh, it will have the maximum strength that an oil paint film can have. And, and here's, you know, yesterday I, I put the base layer in for these flesh tones here, which that's uh, just oil paint. It's, it's mostly white lead oil paint, and it's tinted with a little bit of Mars yellow, a little bit of Mars brown, a little bit of Mars 
red and a little bit of uh, Mars black. Okay. And the reason okay. I use the Mars colors is because they have a very high tinting strength. And so it's mostly lead white from a physical standpoint, but, but these high tinting strength colors mixed with the low tinting strength white lead uh, means that it's very dense and very lean. And so you want your first layer to be lean. So this is essentially Rublev lead white number one that's just tinted with very small amounts of, uh, of Mars colors, synthetic iron oxide colors. And I have uh, prevailed upon uh, George O'Hanlon at, at Natural Pigments to start uh, putting out a line of, of Mars colors, his synthetic iron oxide colors, to, uh, you know, to supplement his line of, uh, you know, he's using all natural earth colors right now. But actually, and the natural earth colors are good, but their tending strength is lower than the uh, than the synthetic iron oxides, the Mars colors. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, I was going to put this back on the easel. Sorry. Yeah, please, please, no worries. Okay. That's a nice painting as well. With uh, well, that looks like God with lightning bolts, or is it Moses? Oh uh, well. Uh, the story behind that is everybody thinks it's Moses. I should probably just call it Moses, but that wasn't what I had in mind when I painted it. Okay. I had, prior to painting that picture, I had painted several pictures, soft, sentimental, kind of moody scenes using beautiful women as models, posing in the moonlight, you know, and things like that. And I realized people are going to think that's all I know how to paint. So I thought, okay, I need to swing the pendulum as far as I can in the other direction and paint the essence of masculinity. And so as I perceived it at that time, this was 1985, the essence of masculinity was power, the exercise of power. And so this is called allegory of power. It's the alpha, isn't it? It's the alpha male. And what I was, uh, what, what I had in mind, who I had in mind when I did it was not Moses, but more like uh, Merlin. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and uh, but I didn't want to festoon him with the, the goofy hat, you know, and props and all that stuff that people put on wizards. You know, I'm not Walt Disney. I wanted his body English and his facial expression. To, to tell the story. Sure. So, uh, so that's a composite of a model that I, I found and, and me. Well, it's, it's Sorry. a really striking image. I, I just had a chance to see it as you were putting the painting back. That's, that's great. The instruction I gave to the model was I had him standing on a table. So I was looking up at him. Yeah. And I said, you, I, my wife made the costume for him. It wasn't that color. I changed the color of it in, when I painted it. But, but uh, I said, you are like the conductor of an orchestra. But your orchestra is the elements of nature. You are controlling them with your great power. And you are enjoying the exercising of this power. 
And so that's that was the idea behind it. Awesome. But try to try to find some lead white. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, don't use anything with zinc white in it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No. Okay. I, I want. And uh, <clears throat> cut way back on the medium that you use. Try try to add no more than is absolutely necessary to your paint to make it a controllable consistency. It, uh, so even when you're building up layers, like let's, cause I normally do things like with a, with a ground coat, like a block in, and then I do a modeling layer over the top and then detail. But what I want to move into is more, more direct painting approach with lots of, you know who I'm really obsessed with at the moment. And, and actually one of my favorite artists of all time, I want to know how he did it. Jules Bastian Lepage. And um, he influenced the Glasgow boys um, and, and, you know, Guthrie and uh, the other names escape me. Um, You've got my book, right? I do. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there's a section in there on the, or there's at least a, a one page on the French academic method. Okay. okay. Uh, that will describe the way that, that uh, Bastien Lepage painted. Fantastic. Okay. Because that is just... Wow. Yeah, he was he was one of the French academic painters, and so they they all work pretty much following the same procedures. Yeah. So there's the, you know, the, the idea was was developed first of all in thumbnail sketches, just you know, what they call them esquisses or something like that, drawn from imagination on a very small scale, mm -hmm. and then they would do, you know, once they decided that this is the right composition, this will work, then they would pose models following the thumbnail sketch and they would do studies and maybe as many as they needed of all the particular elements in the picture, all the details that they felt were important. And then when they'd start on the canvas, it was pretty much the same as the Bouguereau method also with, with maybe, you know, Bouguereau did, did a few things his own way, but, <clears throat> and that's the method I'm following here too, by the way. Uh, on, the, on that picture that I just showed you that I got just started on. Then they would transfer the linear design, once it was worked out on a separate surface, they would transfer that to the canvas. And then they would strengthen it, like I have here, with either ink or some oil paint. Right. On a small brush. I don't know. Can you see this? Oh, all yeah, right? absolutely. So I can see a very clear outline for the figures. I can see them. Perfectly. You know, after they got it on there in charcoal or pencil or whatever they use, then they'd go over that with with uh, a small brush with paint. And then uh, from there, they would start filling in. This is probably. Yeah, it is dry. OK, good. Anyway, they'd start filling that in with uh, general tones, fairly flat. For each area, great. Okay. And when they have, when they have all the canvas covered with paint of the the general color and the approximate value of each area, that stage of the painting is uh, that's called the ebauche. And then they would go over that with the fine. The final stage is is the fini. That's where they would refine it with glazes to deepen the the uh, the, the darkest foreground darks. They would use scumbles. They would use opaque modeling to develop the forms until the finish. So uh, 
that's the way Bastien Lepage worked, I'm sure. Yeah. Unless yeah. I got him mis- mixed up with someone else. No, I think I think um, look, I mean his his work and and there's a lot of distinct brush marks that look like it's almost sergeant esque in a way, like John Singer. Oh, you know what? I'm mixing. I'm I'm sorry. I was confusing him with with Lefebvre. Okay, so Jules Bastian Lepage. He looked like Bastian Lepage. Okay, he he Lepage. However you want to pronounce it. He looked like uh, he yeah. Had I a, think he, a, he, he was know. probably more more influenced by uh, uh, by Millet and Corot. I think. Yeah, he, so he was very what direct. Kind of subjects did he do mostly? More landscape? No. So he was he was a he was a nineteenth century painter, but he was um, he was concerned with um, like kind of farm life, peasant scenes. Uh, his most oh, yeah. famous okay. his most famous image uh, facing you is of the potato gatherers, and the, there's a woman with a basket of potatoes, and it's kind of spilling out. Okay, you're right. And then yeah. there's somebody behind in the for in the background, kind of picking and gathering potatoes. And it's a scene of um, I've seen it. I can't remember. There's another one of a of a girl, and there's a man reclining behind her, just sleeping with his hat over his face, and she's just kind of got this bewildered, just dazed and confused look on her face. But she's just sitting there. I, oh, I know the painting. Yeah, I know the painting. I've seen it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've seen it in person. I'm sure. Yeah. So it's um, you know, I think he I think he painted fairly directly. Direct, yeah. So, with with my question would be then, with a direct approach, with some distinctive brush mark, a little bit of refining, what the, the method that you're talking about could still be used of mapping it out, of course, but then just going having at it with with a paint and a more of an alla prima approach. But yeah, in the final layer, he he would just work in a more painterly manner rather than than trying to refine it with with glazes and scumbles. In the final layer, he would be painting. Uh, essentially opaquely and uh, using large paintbrushes and large quantities of paint so that he could retain that painterly uh, aspect. Yeah. So um, if I was to do what you're suggesting here, then how would how would a glaze work in that, that sense? You know, obviously your lighter colors are going to be scumbled in and brushed in dry, but a, let's say a dark glaze or a shadow glaze to do some toning or maybe create a three-dimensional effect when you have to suspend a transparent pigment in a medium or an oil of some sort how would you do that if you were trying to really limit the amount of fluid that you add to your paint uh if you use paints that are transparent by their nature uh, hang on a second let me get a color chart and show you something okay well the color chart i was looking for i think i have to climb a ladder to find it no worries some colors are more transparent than others by nature. And I make color charts to kind of show up just how opaque or how transparent they are. Uh, so when I make these color charts, I'll spread the paint thickly on one side with a palette if knife. You just and move you that, that way a little bit. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, yeah, good, good, good. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. And I'll scrape it thinly on the other side. Now, the paints that are more opaque... It'll look the same on both sides. I see. The paints see. that are more transparent, there'll be a there'll be a distinct difference between the thick and the thin application. So you want to choose for your glazes paints that are, are more transparent by their very nature. You don't need to add a lot to them. 
maybe you don't need to add anything to them. Just the, the, the binder that's already in the paint to make it into paint is sufficient. And then, and then just spread it on thinly using a heavy, you know, thick, stiff hog bristle brush. Mm-hmm. And then if, and then if <laughs> what you've put on there is still too thick, wipe some of it out, you know? Uh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then when, you when... don't want to add a lot of stuff to your paint. Okay. The more stuff you add to your paint, the more you're placing the, uh, the strength of the paint film uh, in jeopardy. Okay, that's interesting. Really interesting stuff. You should, as far as glazing goes, uh, in the style of Bastien Lepage, you would want to limit the glazing, if you used it at all, only to the darkest darks in the nearest foreground plane. Because the optical effect that it creates is one of clarity. And clarity is only appropriate where there is not enough air in between our eyes and that surface to, to affect the way things appear. The more distance we look through, the more air we're looking through. And the air is not purely clear. It's, it's actually a thin, transparent white during the daytime. Because the sunshine, there are particles in it. There's, there's physical substance to it. And that's why the distant trees look lighter and bluer than the same trees, same kind of trees up close. It's because of the air, atmospheric perspective, which I wrote about in my book. I so yeah. the illusion of atmospheric perspective is destroyed if you use a glaze anywhere beyond the foreground plane. I see. Because okay. it gives a degree of clarity that's inappropriate for that distance. Sure, sure. So you would only want to use it on the darkest accents and the darkest shadows of the foreground plane. It, it, otherwise, you're going to uh, lose the image of three-dimensional depth to a certain extent. Wonderful. No, that that's great. Okay, look, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna squeeze in, just cram in here one more question, one more. Uh, um, you ask me as many as you want. I, I set the whole day aside for this. Oh, gee, I don't need all day. <laughs> uh, but well, uh, it's you know, it's up to you. Look, I, I want to help you as much as I can. Man, I made that promise. Remember, I made that promise to myself in 1968, 67 yeah. or 68, that I would help people, uh, and you're the kind of person I want to help. So. Look, Virgil, yes, I, I, I got to tell you, when I, I I've been very lucky in my career because I I've had uh, you, you probably haven't seen much of my work if if, if any, but um, I, I mean when I started painting, I came across the right people at the right time. So I'm exactly the same as you. I mean I'm I'm gonna turn 35 this year, um, but I made that promise to myself when I had a few people come out and bend over backwards, want to do anything they could to help me. They, they saw this, this young kid. And when I first started my career, I was 19. I had my first exhibition. And um, I had these, the, there was one guy in particular who just, without even asking him, he just started dropping technical knowledge on me. And I said, if, I, if ever I have the opportunity to do the same for somebody else, I'll, I will do that. And now I, I actually do some coaching with some young people via Skype. Um, my favorite little kid, he's, he's 13, he's in Colorado and I teach him free of charge. I, we, we do it all over the internet and, um, I, I talk to him about his painting. So I, I, I really appreciate that aspect to yourself and your character because I, 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 that's how I want to be. And that's, it's how I choose to live. So no, I appreciate that. But my question is, um, 
you know, the, the final stages of this thing, once, once that's finished, and I, I know I can get some of this out of your book, but I, I'm, I'm struggling because I, I, some paintings that I do for myself, I have the gift of having a lot of time. They can sit on the wall for months, even years, and I don't have to do anything because the client's not screaming for it. Whereas some of the time I've got clients who want them or they'll, they'll say to me, hey, I've seen that painting. Is it available? And they'll buy it. Um, and so I've got a few different situations here, but in finishing it off and varnishing it, what I have been doing is I've been painting with an alkyd resin. It dries incredibly fast. Um, Windsor and Newton have guaranteed like a, a permanent flexible structure. I haven't really seen any problems with Windsor and Newton liquid as such, but then I'll go over it with a retail. Liquid's all right as long as you don't use too much of it. Okay. So I, I, I've been using a retouch varnish over the top of that and, um, that works okay. Um, and, and then I just ship it off and it's gone. But with a more longer lasting varnish after the painting's dried six to 12 months, you know, you've got Daymar, you've got all these other options. What do you use personally? What's, what's your favorite varnish to use? I have a varnish, uh, that's based on Regal Res, which is a synthetic resin that was uh, recently made into a varnish uh, by the conservation scientist uh, René Delarie, who uh, works at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Um, it's the same varnish that uh, Gamblin has that they call Gamvar. Okay. And I don't know if you can get Gamblin products, but yes, Gamvar is, is, is that. Uh, also, Natural Pigments has that same varnish. Uh, a regal res varnish that they call conservar c a no excuse me c o n s e r v a r and uh, there's another company that has it uh, it's let's see conservators products company they call it uvs finishing varnish and that's the one that I've been using as uvs finishing varnish okay but uh, okay. any of the regal res varnishes are are the best you can get better than Damar. They were formulated to uh, uh, to give all the best qualities of Damar, the, the desirable optical properties of it, without the yellowing and uh, and the brittleness and the uh, the need to remove it 30 or 40 years into the future. You know, with Damar, you have to remove it and replace it because it eventually will turn brown. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, right. And then there are what they call MSA varnishes that are uh, acrylics that are soluble in, in, in mineral spirits. And Golden has some. Also, Liquitex has one called Soluvar. Uh, these are acrylics, and um, some people like them a lot. I've used them in the past. I don't think I want to use them again uh, because Regal Res is better. I think I'll use that. I think I'll go with whatever you. If you can get regal res, a regal res varnish, I think that's the best you can do. Well, I know I can get Gamvar. There's a company that would ship it to me that is based in Auckland, and they have all of Gamblin's products. So I know I can get Gamvar. Gamvar is the one you should use, I think. Okay. And if you find trouble, some people say that it, they, they've had trouble with it beating up on the surface, and I had that happen on one painting too. Uh, where that happens is when there was too much medium added to the paint when the painting was created. Okay. And uh, the way to get around that is to make sure that the surface of the painting is perfectly clean and dry when you put the varnish on. 
And so the way to make sure that it's perfectly clean and dry is uh, take a very soft cotton cloth, like like a, an old time diaper. Used to be people made used cloth for a diaper, cotton cloth, mm-hmm. rather than these disposable things they use now. So if you can find a soft cotton cloth, moisten it with distilled water, very slightly, not much water. Wipe the whole surface of the painting very gently with that to remove all the water-soluble dirt that might have accumulated on the surface. Give it a day or two to completely dry so there's no water left on the surface or soaked into the paint. Then do the same thing with another soft cotton cloth, moistened very slightly with odorless mineral spirits. Go over it very lightly. If If the paint is more than six months old, it won't come off with the mineral spirits. Okay. Odorless, odorless mineral spirits. Uh, Gamsol is a good brand for that. It's a very mild solvent. That will take off any of the oils that might have been on somebody's hand that touched it or any, any, anything that didn't come off with the water will come off with the, with the Gamsol. Then you let that evaporate for another day or two, and then you're ready to put your, your Gamvar varnish on, and, uh, and it probably won't beat up if you've done that correctly. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Great. And so Gamvar, I've, I've not used it. Is it pretty gloss, satin, matte? What kind of surface quality? They, they, have, uh, they have a satin version and a matte version and a gloss version. And uh, I always use the gloss version because the, the, uh, if you have dark passages in your painting, especially dark transparent passages with glazes, the matting agent that they put in there makes the cloudiness and it destroys the depth or interferes with the depth of your darkest passages. So go with the gloss. And here's the way I, I reduce the gloss so that it's uh, it's not overly reflective. After I have the painting lying flat when I put the varnish on, and I brush it on with a large, let's see, where's, where's my varnishing brush? Well, okay, I don't have the handy to show you. But I put it on with a brush about this wide, a hog bristle brush, stiff hog bristle brush, and I have three or four of them. And I use one to put the varnish on. Make sure that I cover it evenly so that there's no spots that I've missed. And then while that varnish is wet, I grab another brush that has no varnish on it, and I go over it with that to thin out the varnish that's already on the painting. And then I'll set that down and pick up another one and, and go over that with another dry brush so that I've, I've made the layer of varnish as thin as possible. The thinner it is, really, the less glossy it will be and, and uh, the better it will be because it doesn't need to be thick layer. It's better if it's a thin layer. Perfect. And so that reduces the gloss to uh, a degree. Well, I mean, you can just keep doing that as long as you want to until the varnish is dry and, and uh, as reduce the gloss as much as you want by, by following that method. Listen, I, I've taken so much of your time. I really appreciate uh, your, your, your spirit, your generosity here in, in sharing with me, you know, some, some of these other things with uh, oil painting and your views on art. It's been a lot of fun, Virgil. Thank you so much. Okay, well, um, there's more information where that came from if you'd like to talk again. 
Absolutely. No, I, I think I think this is definitely worthy of a, of a few podcasts if you're up for it. Well, Virgil, thank you so much. I think you've given us so much information there. It's been amazing hearing your story and, and learning more about oil painting. And it certainly inspired me to look into this whole thing a little bit deeper. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I've enjoyed it. And I, I'm honored that you consider me uh, worth interviewing in the first place. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. How could I not? How could I not? Virgil Elliott, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again very, very soon. Okay. I look forward to seeing what you've put together from all of this. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Creative Endeavor. I really hope that you've enjoyed this. Now, again, as we talked about in this episode, you might still be able to find a copy of Virgil Elliott's book, Traditional Oil Painting, by doing a search on Amazon.com. Also, make sure that you go to the Facebook page, Traditional Oil Painting, where Virgil is an administrator and a moderator, and I'm sure that you're going to find answers to those painting questions that you seek. I know I've gotten a ton of information from this uh, Facebook page, and it's helped me with a few sticking points when it comes to applying varnish or working out how to layer mediums. It's great to have people like Virgil sharing this information so freely with people because it really gives us the opportunity to take our art to another level. And I, for one, am very grateful for that. Now, again, please take a minute to go to my website, www.andrewtischler.com slash subscribe, and subscribe for some bonus content and some access to some promo codes and giveaways when it comes time to release my upcoming landscape DVD and tutorial and my portrait DVD and tutorial. You guys aren't going to want to miss out on that. It's free to do so, www.andrewtischler.com slash subscribe. And while you're at it, if you could leave me a review wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast, I'd really appreciate that too. It helps other people find this and share the podcast with their friends. And if you'd like to take a minute to recommend this to a friend, that would be awesome. Thank you so much for stopping by. I really hope you've enjoyed this. I look forward to being back with you again very soon with another episode of The Creative Endeavor.